0: We consider the uh, reading of your word. We pray for insight and understanding on who you are, what kind of relationship you're calling us into with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're striving here in the Advent Hope uh, community uh, to be a community that lives in loving, worshipful relationship with God and in loving relationship with each other. And with this in mind, we're taking some time during this winter season to uh, consider the church in beta that uh, newborn church found in the book of Acts. And so for the last several weeks, we've been journeying through this. In the weeks to come, you can go catch up with things at watch.aventhope.org if you've missed any of the uh, teachings, including the great teaching by our brother Derek uh, last week. So again, that's watch.avenhope.org. Dot org. Well, Joanna just read for us one of the most dramatic and, uh, and honestly horrifying narratives in all of the New Testament uh, about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and their. Uh, demise. But there's a backstory that we really need to consider as we think about this narrative, and it's found a few verses before what Joanna read there in Acts chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible or you've got a digital device, we're looking at Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 to get a little of the background to the narrative Joanna just read. And it says in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 that all of the believers of the beta church were one in heart and mind, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph... A Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field. And he brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. So here we have this description of this community, this newborn group of people trying to follow Jesus, living in this loving, worshipful relationship with God and with each other. It's a really... Uh, beautiful account of an altruistic, benevolent a group of people coming together to help each other, to serve uh, each other, something that we here in this Advent Hope community can certainly strive for. In fact, in uh, verse 32 in particular, we uh, see that Jesus' own words were fulfilled. in In John chapter 17, this is at the end of Jesus' life, he had a a monumental prayer, a three-part prayer where he prays for himself as he's getting ready to 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 go to die on the cross. He prays for his disciples, and then he prays for the community of believers that's to come. And so in John chapter seventeen, verse twenty, we read this: My prayer, this is Jesus praying, my prayer is not for the disciples alone, uh, but I pray for all of those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. So Jesus' prayer for his his beta church, for his new church that he was establishing, was that they would be one, and we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And so there's this really uh, cool picture, this narrative of a community of people who are just at one with each other and at one with God. And then we have this story of Ananias and Sapphira, a couple who uh, colluded to, uh, to, to be deceitful. In uh, Acts chapter uh, 5 verse 2, we see that, we're, we're told that Ananias with his wife's full knowledge uh, kept back part of the money that he had sold his, from the sale of his property for himself, but Brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And by the way, this idea of putting it at the apostles' feet—the idea is that they were bringing it to the church community, and that the apostles, the disciples, were going to be the ones to help distribute this, this, these funds through the community to help those who were in need. Now, we might look at this this reading and say, "Wow, this is really a a, a harsh a response to their lack of." Uh, generosity. But the the language of Acts chapter 5 verse 2 gives us a little hint into what was going on here, that this was just a a little bit more than not being generous. Uh, The verb uh, translated here as he kept back for himself appears a couple other places in the Bible. But in particular note, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was mostly written in Hebrew, but the Greeks, uh, it was translated in Greek. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this verb is used in the description of another man named Achan. And his story, you can read later, it's found in Joshua chapter 7. Verse one, and he was also in a beta group, an early group that God was establishing to be a, 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 a light to the world, and was to share good news, and was to be God's rep- representatives am, among the earth. And he also stole. It's much more overt in the Achan story. He stole uh, money that he was told, or uh, property that he was uh, told that he should not uh, keep. And so there's this link between the story of Achan. And Joshua 7 of a, one who stole what he shouldn't have stole, stolen and the story of Ananias and a Sapphira. So Bible students have said clearly this, this isn't just about um, a couple who weren't uh, being as generous as they could. This was uh, a couple who were maliciously trying to deceive the church. They were being... Uh, dishonest with the community, they were wanting to appear as if they were sacrificially uh, giving when they weren't. And uh, we note what Peter says to Ananias: "Why have you done this? You, you didn't have to give this this money. The property was your own. You didn't have to bring the money to us. Why would you pretend like it's the, the you would would be deceitful that this was the entire amount when you could have done whatever you you wanted?" So anyway, it's it's quite a a a dramatic story. Now, I think there are two uh, very clear insights that we get from this narrative. Uh, First of all, it's very clear that uh, God uh, considered opposers to be an existential threat to the church in beta. You know, opposers are are people who present themselves as one thing but really are something uh, else. So we're thinking here now, God is establishing this community that's going to be a representative community for uh, his work in the world to come. And if you're starting something, if you're developing a model, that model needs to be as, 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 as correct, as, as right on as possible. And so apparently this malicious act of deceitfulness was dangerous enough to the integrity of this community of faith that God couldn't put up with it. So again, what seems to us like, well, you know, they were a little bit dishonest was a big deal to God. And so God uh, considered posers, people who were posing as one thing, as an existential threat to this newborn beta church. Uh, Secondly, hypocrisy has been a part of the church since the very beginning. You know, sometimes we think of... uh, times past with nostalgia. Boy, things were better then. Certainly this happens in, in Christian contexts. The church used to be uh, better. Oh, if we could only be like the first century uh, church. The reality is the first century church was just as messed up as any church is today because it was like it is today, full of people. And when you get people involved in any organization, you're going to be broken. You're going to be messed up hypocrisy, which unfortunately is one of those traits that many people associate with Christians. You know what I'm talking about? You know, who, who, who present themselves in one way, who judge in one way, but their actions uh, don't actually represent that way. And so the hypocrites, it's a term that's, that all, is almost synonymous with uh, a Christians. Hypocrisy has been a part of the church since the very beginning. So sadly, that's the case. Uh, with that said, this element of being dishonest, which is really our, our theme today, honesty and, and dishonesty, uh, while, while maybe not as dramatic for each of us here, maybe no one has uh, maliciously uh, tried to cheat their community of faith and, and according to Peter, uh, lie to the Holy Spirit, all of us, if we're honest, have probably wrestled with uh, honesty. I mean, how many of you have been dishonest? You don't have to really raise your hands. It was kind of a test. We were going to test. If you didn't raise your hand, we're counting upstairs and we're going to see who was dishonest. Um, I mean, listen, honesty is is an, an, an issue, probably, for all of us. There have been those moments when uh, you could have been more honest and uh, you weren't. There's a book by this said researcher, Dan Arley, and it's called The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. And in his research, he points out ways in which people are just dishonest in almost like the silliest fashion. Um, so I'm going to read a, a quote from a, a, an interview that he did talking about some re, uh, a research project that he did. He says, uh, we give people a sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems, and, and we say, you have five minutes to solve as many of, of those as you can, and we'll give you $1 per question. All right, so you've got five minutes you solve as many math problems, you get $1, not $100, not $1,000, not $10, you get $1. So the stakes are not very high. And then we say, go. People start and they solve as many as they can. And at the end of five minutes, we say, stop. Please count how many questions you got correctly. And now that you know how many questions you got correctly, go to the back of the room and shred this piece of paper. And once you've finished shredding the piece of paper, come to the front of the room and tell me how many questions you got correctly. So this is, the, this, this is the research project. So you got that now, so you got five minutes, you fill out the questions, then you count how many you got correctly, and then you go back and you put your paper in the shredder, and then you come and tell the, the, the person who is administering the, the test how many you got right. right? Okay, so, well, people do this, uh, Dan says. They shred... They come back and they say they solved on average six problems. We pay them six dollars, they go home. What the people in the experiment don't know is that we've played with the shredder. And so the shredder only shreds the side of the page. But the main body of the page remains intact. And what we find is that people basically solve four and report six. Two dollars you just gain yourself we find that lots of people cheat a little bit lots of people cheat a little why would you do that you gain yourself two dollars in life you're dishonest it's almost as if dishonesty is innate to the human experience and so this leads to our question today why are we dishonest why are we dishonest? Or if you want to be personal, why are you dishonest? Why are you dishonest? I'm sure there are more reasons than this. I'm going to suggest uh, three. Why are humans, why are we so dishonest? Uh, The first one, dishonesty breeds dishonesty. And this really comes from uh, Early's research. Uh, He says that and this is, again, a quote from him. In our experiments, we've shown that if we get one person to cheat in an egregious way and other persons see them, they start cheating to a higher degree themselves. So the, the implication is that when people are in an environment where cheating is, is happening or dishonesty is happening, the likelihood is that you're going to follow a suit. And this is particularly true for people who have grown up in an environment, maybe families that were not very honest. So if your background, whether it's your, your family or you, you're in a work environment that's not honest, the likelihood of you being more dishonest is high. So dishonesty breeds uh, dishonesty. Why are humans so dishonest? Secondly, uh, we as humans think uh, dishonesty will gain us something that we don't already uh, have. Now, while we don't know all of the, 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 the narrative of the Ananias and Sapphira story, but cl- clearly they were trying to gain something, uh, weirdly, that they didn't have, and that was a claim. If they give all their money like Barnabas did, and Barnabas, is, 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 he has acclaim. The, the church has recorded that he has done this. So they're looking for that acclaim, apparently. And so they bring the money and present it as if it's all that they earn. And so they're being dishonest to gain something that they don't uh, have. But, of course, it's not always about money. Sometimes we're uh, dishonest to gain a better uh, reputation Sometimes we're uh, dishonest to gain property or, or money or a claim. Sometimes we're dishonest to gain a job. How many of you were dishonest on your resume? Anyone? Raise your hand. <laughs> no. I think we have to be dishonest to gain something that we don't have. Finally, why are humans uh, so Uh, dishonest we think dishonesty will spare us from things that we're afraid of like say embarrassment have you ever been dishonest to to escape embarrassment Uh, again the the uh, the Ananias and Sapphira story everybody else is giving we got to give honey we got to give what are we going to do did you hear what uh, what Barnabas did we got we got to give and so to, to spare ourselves the, the fear of whatever, embarrassment or whatever it might be, we're sometimes uh, uh, dishonest. We're afraid of what others will, will think of us, whether we'll be uh, accepted, and so we're uh, dishonest. So... Uh, the reality is this issue of, of honesty and, and uh, dishonesty is, again, it seems like an innate problem for us as uh, humans, that we are dishonest about silly things sometimes that are, uh, that we're, are not necessary. And so it, it's just almost a part of our, our uh, character. And yet we read in places like uh, Ephesians 4.25, and this is Paul talking to the community of faith. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one human body. We're all members of a human body, and, and when you're dishonest, it has an impact on your uh, relationship. Have you, by the way, have you ever lied to someone that you're in relationship with, with and then they found out that you were lying? Has that ever happened? How does that affect the relationship? Well, it's not good, right? It's not good. Um, you lie to somebody, it's going to impact, their, and they, they find out. It's going to impact, and they always find out, right? <laughs> Amen. 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 They always find out. I mean, there's just no, I mean, a good, healthy relationship is based on on, on trust, is rooted in trust and, and commitment and and being dishonest chips away at that, that trust. Therefore, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. If you're a, a follower of Jesus, this is essential. For we are all members of one body. We're talking here at Avon Hope about what it means to live as a community of faith and loving, worshipful relationship with God and with each other. Put off falsehood and dishonesty and, and live truthfully, live honestly, and yet, it seems like we have an innate problem with dishonesty. So how do we live honestly? How do we uh, overcome this, this innate dishonesty, this, this issue of, uh, that, that drives us to not be truthful, to not live honestly? We said that uh, dishonesty breeds dishonesty, that when you're around uh, other people or you're in an environment that is dishonest, whether it's at, at work or whether it's your family of origin or whatever that has, has created a, an environment where dishonesty is almost accepted, that that's going to that's gonna permeate your being and you're likely to be more dishonest. So how do we overcome that? When in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 we read the Apostle Paul who says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God knew before, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they might be the firstborn among, among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is saying, look, God has the ability to to transform your character, your circumstances. And and even if you've been in an environment where you've learned harmful ways that aren't good, that hurt relationships, ways like living in in dishonesty, that in Jesus, that can be transformed and you can be conformed to a different pattern. So if you've been affected by an environment, whether it's the family or work or your friends, or whatever, that you can be conformed to a new way of living. He goes on in Romans chapter 12 to say, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies at living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you have been in an environment that has promoted living dishonestly, the gospel tells us that God can transform our minds and conform us to a new way of living, a way of living holistically, a way of living honestly so that we can live in right, holistic relationship both with God and with our brother and sister in humanity. That that even if we've been in an environment where dishonesty is promoted, we can be conformed to a new kind of living. We said that we are dishonest because it will help us to gain what we don't have. Philippians chapter four and verse 19, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus if you feel like you've got to be dishonest to gain something that you uh, don't have you can take heart that the promise of Philippians is like you you, you don't have to be dishonest to have your needs met God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ in Matthew chapter 6 in Jesus' most famous sermon, he says, don't worry about your life. This is easier said than done. Don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you wear. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than the birds of the field? Can any one of you gain one hour of your life from worrying? Don't worry. God is going to take care of things. You don't have to be dishonest to gain what you feel like you need because God is going to take care of things. God promises to provide for all of our needs. Finally, we said that we're often dishonest because we are afraid. Whether it's of embarrassment or of unfortunate outcomes or whatever. And so that drives us to be uh, dishonest in whatever way that that may that that may uh, embody itself. And yet we read in John chapter 14 and verse 27 Jesus in his own words, "Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled." And don't be afraid. So much, uh, there's mo- so much fear in this world, and it has so many uh, outcomes, and one of those outcomes is to protect ourselves by being dishonest, because we're afraid of the outcomes of being honest. But the promise of Jesus himself is don't be afraid. I've got things uh, taken care of. And then in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Don't fear, for I am with you, God says. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous hand. These are the promises of a God who has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. In Jesus, we don't have to be dishonest. We can live honestly. Dishonesty endangers our relationship with each other and endangers our relationship with God. But in Jesus, we don't have to live dishonestly. We can can be honest. We're not trapped by our circumstances. We don't have to be greedy, looking to gain things that we don't have. And we don't have to be afraid. This is the good news of what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. The gospel frees us from having to lie about who we are. Being dishonest subverts God's work. For God requires your participation to, to transform your character. And when we're not honest with other people, we're probably not being honest about ourselves. We've got to be honest about who we are, our shortcomings, where we're falling down, what, what areas in our life need transformation. And if you're never honest with yourself, That transformation is always going to be far away. Transparency. Not just with other people, but with ourselves. Who am I? What are my shortcomings? Where does God need to do what only he can do in my experience? And the promise of living in Jesus is that he can work transformation. That if you've been conformed to one way of thinking, that he can change that. And he can give you a peace about your circumstance. He can help you to live without fear. In Jesus, we can live honestly. Through his spirit, we can be freed from learned behaviors. We can be freed from from greed of wanting what we don't have because he's going to provide what our needs are. We can be freed from living in fear. No more fear. Listen, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Followers of Jesus don't need to be af- afraid. I mean, this world is afraid. People are too afraid. And yet, the promises over and over again from Jesus Himself are don't be afraid. If you're a follower of me, you don't have to be afraid. In Jesus, we have hope. We can live honestly, we can be transparent. And God can do his transforming work in our characters to help us to live at peace with ourselves and with each other. This is the great hope of what God has done in Jesus. So we can live up to the call in Colossians chapter 3 that says to the church, to the community of faith, don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator here in this community there's no gentile or jew circumcised or uncircumcised barba- barba- barbarian scythian slave or free There's no immigrant or a native. We are one. Christ is all and is in all. This is the promise of the gospel and the hope of a community of faith that embraces God's work and his ability to transform our circumstance, to free us from fear, to free us from our circumstances and the learned behaviors that we've had from the past. And to help us live without fear. And so we come together as a community of faith. Longing for God to do what only he can do in this community and in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, sometimes the narrative of the Bible is challenging to us. And we think of this, uh, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and while we don't know all the backstory, it seems like such a harsh penalty for them. And as we consider them and their dishonesty, we consider our own lives and we recognize the areas in which we haven't been as honest with others or with ourselves And so we're thankful today for your grace that we're here living and breathing today. And we recognize that you're calling us to allow you to work in us in a way that we can't work for ourselves. And so I pray for this community. I pray for each person here today that you can do your transforming work in us. Help us to live without fear or greed and to not be chained down our circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.